Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello, hello, and welcome. This is Drive-by Cinema, the podcast where we watch the movies so you don't have to. By we, I mean me, Rick, and my co-host, Paul. Thank you, Richard. Let's get on up and let's get into today's podcast. Which is, oh, you're in a Western mood. I am, yeah. Saddle on up, partner. Uh, it's time for Series 3, Episode 5. You know, when we were doing corrections and omissions and stuff last week... Oh, I, oh, yeah, go on. I don't think I brought up my own error, which is... I was making a play on the idea that... Um, this is a welcome change, an equinamious, equinamous approach to corrections from Richard here. Very welcome indeed. Yes, go on, sorry. You don't think what? I enjoy being corrected, but I'm correcting myself. He does, actually. Listen, we were talking about the conspiracy theorists and the moon and stuff, and I mentioned that some people make big play of the fact that the moon happens to be exactly the same angular size in the sky as the sun. Yeah. Therefore eclipses. I'd said something rather stupid, like, I, I I said it quickly, like a throw. Not as stupid as a lot of lots of people were saying about 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 these kind of things. But, go on. but I'd said something like the Earth and the Sun being the same size. Yeah, uh, which is the wrong way around. Yeah, so which you do make it easy to to correct yourself. Thank you. Thank You're you. A correctional facility in those terms. So yeah, corrections. Look, look. Look, right, okay, all kinds of nonsense happened last week, and I do think I have to veer, veer towards that direction. First of all, Jaeger, yeah, maybe I got things wrong. I was saying Jaeger meant huntsman in German, and, and therefore you're saying, well, no, it means it means Jaeger in German. Fair point. Uh, <laughs> that was more of a joke, though. I, I don't know, think I know, but it, well, it leads to an interesting sort of idea about, you know, how do how do you use escape keys in language to talk about language? It's difficult. Ah, I see. Yeah, meta references and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So uh, maybe in German, Jaeger means huntsman. In English. Yeah. In English, yes. In German, Jaeger means huntsman. <laughs> in English, yeah. if we're going to specify the two escape keys, uh, that was bad. Bye. But okay, two things. One, like I knew one was much better than the other. Okay. Uh, however. I was completely wrong. Top-loading washing machines do not wash as effectively as front-loading washing machines. So, Oh, really? So, yeah. So, you were right about that. I mean, you, I'm well done calling me out on that. Okay. Why is that, though? Why are you? Uh, it's to do with the tumble, isn't it, really, I think? I mean, right. I, I using thinking, gravity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was thinking the advantage of a, a top-loader was they're constantly in a depth of water, you know, uh, and you do get a nice soak with a top-loader. Uh, but apparently it doesn't wash as well. It doesn't get deep stains out. And also, of course, it's very heavy on your clothes. So, Yeah, you know, uh, those ridges, those ribs on the interior yes. of a washing machine, they're yeah. kind of like pummeling the washing, aren't they? they so you want to throw the washing from one side to the other. And the door on a washing machine like goes in a long yeah. way into the drum. That's uh-huh. part of the washing as well. That's another thing that it hits against. Ah. Uh-huh. Are modern washing machines, are they supposed to have like a, a minimum of water? Because I never see a water level in my washing machine like I used to. Oh, they're to. very efficient these days, aren't they? They I use like, the like, bare minimum. Oh, bare so minimum. you're not supposed to have water halfway up anymore? No, no. Ah, no. okay. Because I also I had, remember, a, bit, I also had yeah. a bit from the kettle just to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> now, the bit that you see, it wouldn't matter because it would just shut off the input sooner. Would it? And are they not supposed to be sudsy, the, the washing pods these days? Because I don't see any suds really either. What's a sud? Like, the, you know, the foamy stuff. Oh, yeah. Very, very, not very sudsy anymore. Is that, no, is actually. That an advancement. No, um, suds, as you call it, foam, is not, uh, it's not a good thing for washing. It's just air, isn't it? And in, in a normal wash, I mean, if you put, as we well know, what happens if you put ordinary washing up liquid in a dishwasher? Yeah. Disaster, don't do that. Yeah. You know, mechanical washing devices don't need suds. They want minimum suds. Low sud kind of detergent is what's required. Whoa. Okay, so the second correction I need to draw our, I guess, listeners' attention to is, Richard, you mentioned that there were more either genii or species. I'm not quite sure, you know, what the family tree is here in terms of 
evolutionary biology of wasps that died when they stung them bees. And I have to say, I, I, with the limited research resources I've got, that that just isn't true. I'd heard that. So I'm uh, sorry. Yeah, I'd heard it was a, it was a myth busting thing where someone had said, uh, "Yeah, so if you've been stung by an insect and it dies immediately afterwards, it's more likely to be a wasp than a bee." Just on the on the balance of the number of species, but I've done absolutely no research to back that up, and obviously you've done a little bit, so I'll have to defer to your well, I mean, epistemic position, really, won't I? What, from what I can find out, it's it's only honeybees, essentially, pretty much. Okay, right. Okay, it's only honeybees. Yeah, and the interesting well, the, the, the stinger has a barb, so they leave the stinger in, and when they fly away, or get flicked off. It takes part of their insides with them, including the little bit that pumps venom into you. So yeah. that's uh, why honeybees die when they sting you. Yeah. yeah, all the muscles get detached apparently in that process. So like, it must be like, you know, being paralysed from the waist, well, from, from the sting down kind of thing. So the word I'm looking for is clade. Okay, clade is like that branch. It could be family, it could be genus, it could be species, whatever. That branch of... of, 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 of the tree of life, okay. And so what's interesting here semiotically is that wasp is a word that refers to wasps, as we understand them, but the family or the order uh, of wasps, which include bees bees, uh-huh. and ants, but they are not called wasps. So it's one of those weird things where they kind of twist the rules about naming here. Rather like the word man in English. Like, man can mean adult male, but you can't or humans. Use, or humans. Yeah. But you can't really use it to refer to children, which is weird, because they are men also. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, is it a bit like cows and stuff? You can't, like, because you, you say, I keep cows, you could just have bulls, couldn't you? But You could. You could just have bulls. Bulls, okay. So the term for this is paraphyletic grouping. Okay. Yeah, this is something I learned whilst researching wasps. Did or do not have have self lethal stings. So paraphyletic means like a grouping whereby it includes in the group things that are not in the group, like bees and bees and ants. Oh wow! Um, Russell would would have a field day. So I've only discovered that word, and it's it's fascinating and somewhat somewhat mind blowing. Yeah. Well, I yeah. hope this are we this level of now? This level of detailed research continues into the movie that we're going to watch. <laughs> okay. Full disclosure, I'm going into this blind because, you know, it's not often we do a cinema release, is it? You know, so. Is it time for the music? It is. Get it up, Potter. Here, here we go. Thank you, Paul, for the Western intro. Hmm. I wonder if there is a movie in which the characters say the name of the film as many times as happens during this film. Nope. <laughs> I mentioned in Candyman that one of the characters averted a horror trope, opens the door to the cellar, looks in it, looks dark and creepy, and just goes, nope, and shuts it. Yeah, I mean, they say nope in this movie until the cows come home or until the horses run away, don't they? Pretty much. This is Jordan Peele. We've seen two movies he's directed so far in Drive by History, uh, Drive by Cinema History. One of which I now remember is not Runaway; it's Get Out. Get Out, Us, Us. Last week we saw one that he helped write and produce. He was going to direct, but it uh, ended up being Nia Da Costa. Can you remind me of the name of that movie, please? Candyman. Paul. I oh said yeah, it Candyman. Not Thirty course, seconds yeah. ago. I know. I know. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> this is what happens when you work in memory fails. Hey, it's very early. We've got up on a Sunday morning to do this. Yesterday, it yeah. was National Cinema Day. Yes, I wanted to talk about that. And I told you to go and see it because all tickets to cinemas, it's far too late for you now, listeners. I'm sorry about that. All tickets were three pounds plus. Plus a book and V. Yeah. Which was 75 pence, which is very reasonable. <laughs> 95 pence for me. Plus, I mean, you, I could part now for five hours with that if I put my registration number into the little, uh, little slightly grubby laptop. Uh, or uh, iPad in the corner of the cinema, which is a lot of free parking. So, yeah, so yeah. it is a lot of free parking. Imagine what you could do with that. I could go and sit at McDonald's for another 
two hours and fifteen minutes. <laughs> yeah. So it I just say, okay, three pounds okay. is a good thing, yeah. But I, sure. actually, in my, I didn't go to my next door cinema, but my next door cinema, the tickets for four pounds fifty anyway. So, so it's not yeah. much of a saving. Not much of a discount. But the ticket, the, the tickets I bought would have been about twelve pounds because I went. I went into town, so to speak, to the big to big cinema. This has been billed as the first horror movie filmed in IMAX. I didn't see it in IMAX, but that ah. was something notable about it. Interesting. Worth seeing at the cinema, probably. It is a big spectacle movie, and I think Jordan Peele said that's what he was trying to achieve. Yeah. It's got some classic Hollywood kind of panoramic shots going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of attention on angles and camera work and that kind of it's, thing. Oh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful looking film. Absolutely. We do seem to go to the cinema roughly once a season, don't we? That's been our yeah. average. <laughs> it's how often it, I get out of the house these days. It may go up now that we're actually allowed to go out of the house. Um, I suppose that's a possibility. The question is, do I good. want to go out of the house? It's good to support your local cinema, who have been having a torrid time. Yeah, uh, Jordan Peele himself was saying that when he made this film, he was thinking that we needed to, you know, it looked like cinemas were in trouble. We need to make films that people wanted to go and see in the cinema. And yeah. it was good. It wasn't very busy, though, considering. Although I did go to the Manity um, showing. I don't know. What, <laughs> even though I'm a human, they let me in. <laughs> wow. Yeah. How many people were in yours? About 35 people were in my in my showing, so... I don't think as many, maybe, in my... I did count. But I, 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 you were in the evening. I was there at sort of 12.30. Which was yeah. in the early birds, yeah. I was. That was lunchtime show. Swimming so in the I, fast lane. I got myself a delicious, uh, organic, free-range hot dog. <laughs> and, and an ice blast as well. Yeah, so obviously they're struggling because, they. I mean, the prices of the concessionary food has really gone up. Uh, my hot dog meal deal was... Fourteen pounds twenty-five, where it's usually eleven pounds. So, hold on. What what did you get in your meal deal? I've got a large drink. Okay, sugar-free, but full of those artificial sweeteners. Cheesy Nutritious chips. artificial colorants. Yeah, cheesy chips too. Cheesy chips. And inevitably, there was no mustard in the mustard jar for the hot dog, so I got a double sachet ketchup hot dog instead, which was fine actually. Uh, they didn't have any of those dispensers on the counter, you know, the, the big ones. Post-COVID, really, isn't it? They just gave me a small thing of mustard and some ma- sachets. Of, yeah. So, but it was, it was fine. I mean, I would have wanted some popcorn, but you can't simultaneously carry a hot dog, popcorn, and a drink and open the cinema door. Uh, yeah, this is a problem, isn't it? It's Definitely a real problem. And also show your QR code to the young gentleman or lady at the kind of not restrictive gate, the very open, <laughs> open-ended gate. Why don't they let me order on my phone from the cinema seats when I've sat down? That would be. I mean, there's only idea. like five people in the cinema. That it wouldn't have taken them long to serve us all. <laughs> yeah, but then you could stand by a little sort of service hatch around the huge opening surrounding the man who's checking the tickets. And, you know, they could put it there with a the number, couldn't they? You could come collect it, and he could manage that collection. Yeah, absolutely. There you no, go. I mean, they could bring it to your seat. Why couldn't they just bring it to me in the cinema seat? Oh, heck, you thumb. Well, the adverts are on. Sounds you like know. a good job creation idea from Richard there. <laughs> Get on it, cinemas. That's what you want. You want I, I really want service. to bring him back the interval. I think we need a five-minute break where we can all go for a pee and a poo. A poo? <laughs> Potentially. <laughs> a pee and potentially poo. Depends very on the quick, hot dog you're eating, I guess. Yeah, you know, a very quick poo. A sprint poo. Okay, shall we launch into this movie, Richard? All right, yeah. Well, we've explained exactly how we saw it. Yes. So. At length. Interminably. But, so, so, yeah. No. I'm, gu- <laughs> I'm guessing that neither of us were able to take notes. No. Because no. I don't have a pen with a light in it. And that would be very annoying. Yeah, I dutifully switched my phone off as well, so... Yeah. You could whisper it into your voice recorder on your note <laughs> if you wanted to. So, the story of this film. Let's be real here. Jordan Peele, he is doing something quite interesting and amazing with the horror genre in the two films we've seen so far and the one he helped write. Yeah, a, a completely different spins, you know. It's a gyroscope of a horror film, isn't it, really? And they're multi-layered. And so, 
you get the same theme repeated three times at least, I think, in Nope. The first scene, the opening sequence, which I'd already read about, actually, because I was just trying to get a handle on what I was going to see, because I didn't have much of an idea. I think yeah. it was also quite... I think it was kept under wraps as well, the whole thing behind the film, when it was first released. Oh. The opening sequence is a flashback to a 1960s, 70s sitcom. Actually, late 80s, early 90s, is that what you said? No, I thought it was 60s. No, Maybe, oh, it was late 80s, 80s yeah. early 90s. Yeah. Yeah. No, that would make sense, yeah. The conceit of this sitcom is a family <laughs> live with a chimpanzee yeah. who's dressed up as a human. And we're focusing on one particular episode, which was the penultimate or ultimate episode, I guess, of the sitcom, which which was stopped short in its tracks, which is it's Gordy's birthday, the chimpanzee's birthday, and, uh, and they're bringing him different presents. And what we know from this flashback is something terrible has gone on. Yes. And a young child star is sort of crouched, fearfully under a table while he watches a chimp covered with blood running around the set, which is deserted up from living people as all the audience have run out and stuff. So Ricky Park is the child actor. And and then, I don't know what point... Played by, well, later played by, when he, the older Ricky Park, played by Stephen Yuen, who was in Walking Dead. That was, that was where I first saw him. Ah. This, of course... In part, riffs of... And Jordan Peele loves to do this, doesn't he? He loves to take real-world legends or urban myths or, or meme sort of ideas or stories or real stories that have become kind of internet copy-paste stuff. Yeah. And he, he likes to put them in the the backstory of his movies. Yeah. It's, it's, it it's, in, it's a weird attention to detail, it? isn't it? So. It's brilliant, isn't it? But th- this riffs off the... Horrific story of the woman who kept, I think she kept a couple of primates as pets. Oh, God, no. And one day the chimp snapped. And, you know, we may have said it before, but monkeys are extremely dangerous animals, and chimpanzees particularly, have the strength of, like, depending on who you ask, five or ten men. Richard is an expert on the difference between bonobos and chimpanzees, by the way, everybody. Am I? Yeah, well, yeah. You, you know more about it than the average person, let's put it that way. Well, all I know is that if you meet bonobos in the wild, they're, yeah, they're likely to fuck you, and the chimpanzee <laughs> is likely to eat you. Yeah. Uh, and they're brutal in their, you know, persecution of, of violence against, you know, other primates. You know, They'll eat your face and genitals by preference, it would seem. So there's this this terrible real story where this woman who kept a chimpanzee, and I think she kept it kind of drugged up on Valium or something as well. It snapped one day, and her friend arrives to find this chimp attacking her, and there's this horrific telephone call where she's, you know, calling the police. That was Describing released. what's happening. Describing what's happening. It's absolutely chilling. And she survived, absolutely shockingly, but, you know, she didn't have a face left. Oh. So she was hor- yeah. horribly disfigured by the, the whole thing. And so later in the movie, we discover that his co-star, uh, Ricky's co-star, the young girl actor he had a crush on, uh, she comes to his uh, his his ranch, as it turns out, uh, covered in a veil. Uh, and, yeah. And uh, briefly, we see glimpses as gusts and gales blow up the veil of you know of her of her reconstructed face. Yeah. Yeah. She's got no lips. Yeah. So that that flashback seemed initially to be completely unconnected. With the rest of the movie, I think it's fair to say, Paul. Yeah. But it's riffing off a theme that we'll come back to again and again. We now focus on a ranch, which we learn later, it's not obvious at the beginning maybe, but we learn is uh, the home of a business which supplies horses to Hollywood. Horses to Hollywood. Film and TV. Is it Hollywood Haywood Horses or something like that? Haywood to Hollywood Horses, something like that. Yes. The father of the family running this ranch, played by Keith David, Ah, familiar face. He is a familiar face and a great actor. And he's playing the the old hand at this. And his son, uh, called OJ, amusingly enough. Uh, Played played by by Daniel Kulashaker. Yeah, who we've seen before in Get Out, of course. Yeah, and and, and was looking quite handsome in this movie. He's an English actor, of course. What an amazing accent. He, play, he plays a very understated role in this, doesn't he? He keeps it really kind of locked down throughout yeah. it all. 
part of that, of course, feeds into what happens when he tries to deliver a safety talk on, on set later. But the opening scene at the ranch is him talking to his dad and they're doing horsey stuff, doing training stuff and feeding the horses. And whilst his dad is giving him some wisdom... This is so weird. A great start to the movie, by the way. It's creepy, isn't it? Suddenly, things start falling from the sky. You can't see them, they're so small. You can just see puffs of dust sort of pricking up from the, uh, you know, the scrubland. As things going things through, falling. things going through the roofs of uh, vehicles and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. OJ is looking over at his dad, who's not said much for a while, and the horse starts moving away because I think the horse might have taken a hit from one of these things. And he runs over. I think his dad falls off the horse at one point and he runs over to He's try and help him. He's been hit by some sort of falling. It turns out a coin, a nickel, a nickel has gone yeah. clean to his, his eye. Oh. And he winds up in hospital, but obviously it's gone deep into his brain and he dies. So. And it's later explained as things falling from an aeroplane, although I, we're supposed to, as an audience, believe that's that's somewhat suspect explanation. But I wonder again, like, you know, Jordan Jordan's technique of bringing in sort of uh, urban myths. I wonder if there has been stuff, like they say, like frozen toilet water, frozen blue water no, well, hitting people or not. I was going to bring this up as well because I've I've heard on a couple of podcasts, actually, which try and do this kind of debunky stuff, a little bit about this as well. But you're, in, you're referring to blue ice incidents. Yes. Now, <laughs> planes... Don't dump their sewage. <laughs> They're not trains. I guess trains don't do it anymore, but they used to, didn't they? they like, certainly I, I remember in the 70s, to. it was like, do not go to the bathroom while we're in station. Because it will just dump it there <laughs> on the tracks kind of thing. Amazing. But, but planes do have a tank that has to get emptied, you know, regularly on the by the ground staff. And it is possible that the little flappy door that covers that tank might a little bit, yeah, and you might get a bit of Elsan blue kind of water uh, from the sewage tank, and it can maybe sometimes freeze on the exterior. Can it freeze though? Because isn't it full of antifreeze? Yeah, but it's very, very cold, isn't it? At, at thirty-five thousand okay. feet, so eventually it will freeze. And so small bits of blue ice have sometimes fallen from aircraft, but wow. it's very rare, and uh, you're not being hit by someone's actual. Turd. <laughs> but I was more thinking of incidents of celebratory gunfire where people shoot their guns uh. into the sky without apparently giving much thought to the physics of the matter. And I, But I heard people on podcasts saying that, yeah, you know, the bullet will come back down, but it, you know, it won't be going fast enough to kill you. Let's just talk mm. a bit about the physics of that. Because it's not completely straightforward. It's an aerodynamic uh, object, so its terminal velocity is going to be pretty high. Yeah, this is obviously the key. it comes this is out the, key the thing. it comes out the gun faster than its terminal velocity. You know, it's pushed out there. Sure, and it does slow down to a terminal velocity. Absolutely. Let, let's get rid of the air though, and let's just be very clear about this. Imagine you're on an airless planet on the moon. If you shoot a gun in the, you know. Straight up in the air. It's going to come down fucking fast. It will eventually come back down, and it will come down exactly as fast as it started going up as, which is clearly lethal, no question. As you rightly point out, the only thing that changes this on Earth is the fact that the atmosphere is there. Two things. Uh, Air resistance, or we might call it drag, I guess, and also buoyancy. Archimedes' principle. Hmm. But a bullet isn't particularly buoyant, is it? Because it's heavy. Well, the, the air is a very, very, very not dense fluid, so the buoyancy aspect in air is, is negligible. Yeah. Also, the terminal velocity. People often, I think people often don't understand what terminal velocity means. I think some people think it means the speed that you die when you're falling, which isn't a thing. <laughs> uh, terminal velocity means that if you just let something go, if you drop an object, it will speed up as it drops, because it's being accelerated by gravitational forces. But at some point, the force of the air pushing against it as it's moving through the air will balance the force pulling it down. According to its aerodynamic profile. Exactly. So, obviously, aerodynamic things fall quicker and have a higher terminal velocity than non-aerodynamic things. And as you rightly say, a bullet going point first is pretty aerodynamic 
Yeah. And it's therefore, because, you know, people want long-range bullets, don't they? Mm. So it's, it's terminal velocity is lethally high. If it's well, tumbling around, its lethal velocity will be lower. So the only question is, and it's an empirical question, is is it low enough that it wouldn't kill you? Mm. And it's, you know, who knows? It's probably very complicated. We're in the area of moot here, aren't we, at the point? You know, it's very very moot, I think. But it's probably going to really hurt at the very least, isn't it? At the very least. And if you look up in the sky and it hits you in the eye, it almost certainly will kill you. Because you can be killed with an air pistol to the eye. Now, interestingly, it's something I mentioned the other week. Your skull's pretty hard, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, Hayward's horses uh, inherited yes. after the death of the uh, patriarch by the son, and it, it's now like most of the son, but son and daughter kind of duo. Yeah, because as you say, he's not great with words, and his uh, his little sister is there trying to make it big in Hollywood. She, I mean, she's got all kinds of side gigs trying to hustle him on Hollywood, uh, and so she's like, you know, the the. The front-facing end of the uh, of the, of the outfit. She gives an awful safety briefing though, because all she does really yeah. is big up, uh, you know, herself and say how good she is. And then, of course, what happens on set is that he's got this horse there that they're going to film for this advert, I think. But he's not vocal about what he requires, is he? They don't say very clearly, which you should have said, is two things uh, that I guess are obvious about horses: don't go around the back of the horse, and two. Yeah. He's telling people, don't look it in, in the eye. And some kind of camera lighting guy comes up with a, a spherical mirror and he points it in front of the horse's face while the makeup woman is around the back of the horse and it kicks out. I don't think it kicks her, does it? It just kicks her makeup like tray out of her hand and could have been very nasty. So, that, you know, as safety briefings go, it didn't really, didn't really do the deed, did it? It didn't, no. So Antlers, Antlers Holst, who is the prominent sort of commercial director that they're working with, he summarily sends them off set and they're fired. Yes. Heck. Yeah. Well, then we, then we meet, then we meet uh, Ricky. Yeah. That's right. Ricky Duke Park. Okay. At his ranch, which happens to be next door to Haywood's horses. And Ricky's ranch is called Jupiter's Claim. Okay. And it's one of those kind of ranches that, you know, they, it's part of the Hollywood tourist mill where, you know, they bring, they bring, you know, spectators in, a crowd in, and they put on like a Western show for them, that kind of thing. Yeah. But obviously, you know, I mean, Ricky's had a lot to deal with. So, so, uh, his whole show is like, all based on the horrific, horrific events that happened at Gordy's, on the set at Gordy's home. But we don't know because, that course, initially, do we? Uh, we don't know. We, that we that don't initially. see his big show. We, get a sense that, but, we, get, we just get a sense that Jupiter's Claim is a weird and wacky kind of place, yeah. Yeah, it's like a western frontier town dressed up, isn't it? Uh, with little rides, like, uh, you know, Ferris wheel type rides and stuff, and a big inflatable mascot, which is... Uh, a, cow- a little cowboy kid winking, which is, you know, an interesting... It's interesting how many times you see, like, a one-eyed thing in this after oh. after Pop's initial demise at the hands of his eye. So Ricky Jupe is, like, he's talking to the couple because they're in fact They've got financial woes now. They're being fired from this big ticket. Uh, but he's buying stuff. He's buying horses he off wants them, to buy. He? Well, he wants to buy... He offers to buy their whole ranch, too. The whole ranch, M- yeah. The sister in the outfit, she's like to OJ, who's you know played by Daniel, Daniel Clure. She's like OJ, hey, you know you've got to you've got to consider his offer, kind of thing, despite how weird he is. <laughs> she's called Emerald M, uh, and he's called OJ because which actually Otis Junior. Someone comments on OJ really, one of the actresses I think on set. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, he often wears orange, and she's always wearing green. Ah, clever, eh? So yeah, they go. Then they go back to the ranch, don't they? After this exchange, and this is where it all starts to get freaky. What happens, Paul? What's the first encounter that they have? Well, the first thing is the electricity kind of cuts out without warning. Power yeah. cut, yeah, uh, and then comes back in and brownouts and, and comes back in again. And, and the horses just are freaking out to what seems to be some sort of unknown or supernatural presence amongst them. One of the horses called Ghost. And interestingly, you get a title card showing the name of different horses, don't you? At certain parts during the film. It's really interesting. Yeah. 
One of the horses called Ghost, it leaps its fence, runs off down the valley, and OJ gives it chase, I think. And whilst he's quite away from the uh, the house, he spots the sudden movement in the sky, doesn't he? Shadow in the and car. Does Ghost get sucked up at that point? I, I'm not sure exactly what happens to Ghost. I think it might well, do. They've got missing horses. Whirlwind. Yeah. I mean, the point is, I mean, his realisation is he's got, he's got some missing horses uh, and, uh, and uh, he realises they're being sucked up into the sky uh, along with other stuff and uh, the non-edible debris being spat back out again. He goes back to the house and I think he's explaining... Did M see it as well? But he explains it to M nonetheless. And M is kind of getting excited by the idea that if they could Yeah, capture, she sees an opportunity here, doesn't she? She wants, you know to be able to break the footage, the best footage of a UFO ever caught. Because we, we start to learn now at this point in the movie that it is something to do with a UFO or, as one of the characters explains, a uh, UAP is the new word, unexplained aerial phenomenon. So, I mean, the next day or next next scene, they hot-foot it off to Fry's Electronics to sort of uh, beef up on their surveillance camera uh, and camera camera equipment, but also on some sort of recording equipment that's going to allow them to record this UFO in action, you know, and for M to get her opera moment, as she calls it, that that moment, that moment of video footage that is so good that it's going to make it all the way to opera's network. But, of course, every time this thing has appeared, the power has gone out, and so their existing yeah. equipment wouldn't work. Uh, so right. they go to Fry's and they speak to the sales guy called Angel, who, ah, Angel, yeah. He starts advising them, you know, uh, well, you've got a battery backup system here, you know, and he says, yeah, but my cell phone went out. Yeah, no, you don't. And he, Angel's like, yeah, you don't know how these things work, do you, kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I could install it for you. It's easy for me to do it. So Angel comes it is over. A, it does a really good job of chipping away at their confidence in getting the sale there, doesn't <laughs> he? It? does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, I don't know if it's during this or whilst he's snooping on the fo- on the on the feed that comes from the new cameras that he's released to them. He installs but for them. He goes to the ranch, doesn't he? Installs, he installs. Yeah, them. that's that's that, there's some comedy moments in that in that sort of scene. Okay, but he realizes that the UFO is hiding behind a cloud that never changes. That's a quite a bit later, isn't it? But you're right. Is yeah. it? Uh, oh, it's after he's installed it. Because before that, M decides, and I thought this was a bit of a leap. This was the only bit of the movie you didn't totally buy. She decides that what she's going to do is go to the Jupiter Ranch where they've got these fake, uh, well, fake, you know, horse statues. Like there's one of a, a prancing <laughs> horse, kind of a rearing horse. She she steals that from the Jupiter theme park, puts it in the back of the trailer. It's got this long sort of trail of buntings stuck around it as well. Yeah, And she decides to put that out in the fields as bait I thought it was a real big leap. I, I didn't think we'd totally been sold on the idea that this UFO loved horses so much that it would be fooled by a horse statue. <laughs> but okay, you know, I'm on for the ride. So they unload it in the field, and Angel is there and helps them as well, actually. Yeah. And they leave it there thinking this is going to attract the thing. Uh, and, you know, uh, and they'll be able to get their footage. But again, the power goes out, and so... You know, Angel doesn't really see anything, but we'll, we'll come back to, as you say, he does notice something on the footage later. So, I mean, the great thing about this movie is, like, when we're kind of working it through with them, you get a real sense of not knowing what's going on. Whereas I think most extraterrestrial movies, I mean, it's pretty, they're pretty early on we realise it's extraterrestrial, but we don't see it for a while, and we don't really know its form, and we don't really know what it's doing to kill all electric activity electrical activity electric fields you know so i really like the fact that we don't really we have to work out put things together and patch things together to get a sense of what's going on we kind of share their confusion and, and some of their terror you know so yeah but they kind of put it all together and they kind of realize i was gonna that. say something though we don't know that it's extraterrestrial this thing it could be. Well, we don't, but they're convinced that it is. Yeah. And that's the great thing is, you know, they're kind of locked up in some sort of Hollywood National Enquirer mentality. That no, but I mean... We can believe that they're completely, they're completely, you know, 
Sure. Out of their minds. Uh, it, look, it, no matter what, it's extremely anomalous and unusual and, and weird. So even if it's not extraterrestrial, it's certainly what we would call a cryptid. You know, it's uh, an unknown organism of some kind. I'm, just, I'm simply saying that despite whatever everyone's natural assumptions about UFOs, mm-hmm. really, I mean, it just means it's something in the sky that hasn't been identified. And its origin could be completely terrestrial. So it's at this point that Angel's, he's, he's wiretapping, you know, he's piggybacking their feed that he shouldn't be doing. And he says, look, that cloud hasn't changed. And then well, we'll also, be more focused. Ah, but also, also, OJ. also oh. M has tried to contact Antlers Holst, the director of the advert they were working on. Because <laughs> they got fired from, yeah. yeah. He's such like an auteur. Is he, I think he might be the director of cinematography, not the... Director of, I think he might be the cameraman, cinematographer, not the yes. director. Director, but nonetheless, he's such an auteur. He's he's renowned for wanting the best shots always. Yes, and so she thinks he'd be the perfect guy to try capture this thing and get the best possible footage. And it, but initially, he brushes her off, doesn't he? He's extremely kind of. Uh, Sort He's of, so snotty. In a nihilistic and world weary, just yeah. He doesn't pay any attention. He only gets in touch with them again after news of an event breaks later on. And that event yeah. is to do with Dupe and his his show that they have every Friday night. <laughs> and what- yeah, so just before that, okay. So after Angel's observations, it's it's OJ that comes to the conclusion. This on this UFO isn't probably a ship, but it's probably some sort of predatory, nasty, territorial monster kind of thing of an alien variety. So then we cut to Jupe's show. Uh, there's lots of giggles here, you know, because it's like a really naff kind of Western show, isn't it? Okay. With, uh, you know, uh, lots of breaks in the feed and uh, lots of uh, backstage sort of shout outs and that kind of thing. And he's got some kids dressed up as UFOs. And he's, as he's injured. As aliens, excuse me, yeah. As you, what, what, what we've missed is what we've missed is yeah the scene where so M has stolen this horse statue from uh, from Duke's place. <laughs> That's right. And yeah. It does. So, by the way, it does get eaten. It gets sucked up into a whirlwind, and you see the bunting hanging down from the from the the thing, which looks like a fly. It does look like a flying saucer, and it shoots off into the cloud with this trail of flags and stuff. So the kids that work for the kids that work for Jude. Well, they're they're his kids. Been, they don't just work for him. Oh, they're his kids. Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. They, they do a prank, don't they, on OJ? They go to the Haywood's Ranch, whatever it's called, in at the middle of the night, and this is incredibly creepy, classic it horror was so scary. scene yeah. filmed where these creatures you don't know that they're anyone dressed up at this point, uh, and of course, ironically, that's what it would be. You know, if they were filming aliens, well, anyway, it's all very meta, isn't it? But you, you see these incredible—it's—it's it's shot like this is an alien invasion, isn't it? Where yes, like something you'd switched off or on switches back off again, and he turns around and there's this thing standing watching her, and he kind of retreats around the corner in terror. And this goes on until some point there's one hanging down for one of the horse stable things upside down or something isn't he and he punches it in the face and it turns out to be a kid in a mask <laughs> and it's dupes yeah. kids who have been but they've nicked him. the horse haven't they what do you mean they've hit the horse they've nicked sorry they've nicked the horse well that's right it was revenge for them nicking the horse statue so when we come to ricky dupe's show he's actually got a live horse no that was the one that they sold that was lucky that he sold to was it? yeah oh. he took it to dupe didn't he and sold it to him yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So his kid, yeah, his kids are there, all dressed in their like Jupiter alien masks, and he's also got a horse in a horse box, a sort of glass horse box, in front of this little audience. It's the kind of stage where normally in a Western theme park they would have a, a mock Western shootout. Yes. But instead, it looks out over this fantastic <laughs> Californian, you know, desert valley. Now there's a weird thing where he segues in from Gordy's home. Uh, yeah, which I think a lot of them have come from, come to see the fan base, yeah. you know, into saying, well, that's not what we're going to talk about today. 
Uh, and then he says, you know, behind you, you're going to see something that's going to change your life. But this is the theme, isn't it? It's come up two times already. It's this idea of having an animal that you're trying to use or tame as part of your show or part of your spectacle. Yeah. And it going wrong and the animal bites you back. It happened, obviously, in Gordy's home in the in the uh, flashbacks. It happened on set of the advert with the horse kicking the makeup woman. Yeah. And it's about to happen again with Dupe and his special show, which we have to infer his show would normally be, and I only presume that this happens several Fridays before, is that he wheels a horse out, lets the horse go out of the horse box, and this thing comes swoops down from the cloud, this big triangular the shape, horse. sucks the horse up <laughs> in a whirlwind, and then disappears back into the cloud. The cloud which, as you say... Angel had identified on the videos in a really creepy way, actually, was the only cloud in the sky that never moved and was always there. But unfortunately, it all goes wrong, doesn't it? And in the flashback, we see uh, what went wrong in Gordy's birthday party. So they bring in this big box (laughs) and the, the girl opens the box. All these helium balloons pop out. One of them hits a studio light and pops. And then you just hear this chimp screaming in anger and terror as the, 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 the disaster unfolds. And poor, poor Ricky, Ricky, Ricky Jupe is there hiding under the table uh, and there's this horrible comic moment, grotesque comic moment where, you know, the chimp's dismembered people and, and all this kind of stuff and the chimp comes over for a fist bump and points to uh, a shoe that is kind of, uh, it should be back on the leading female star's foot, you know, because he's, he's worried about, you know, he's, he's ripped somebody's shoe off rather than the fact he's just murdered everybody on set. So, yeah. And, and, and shoe- Ricky's trying to deal with this as he's putting the show on, so I guess that's why we get the flashback, isn't it? And that shoe is mysteriously standing on its end. It's like yes. on its heel straight up. It's really, it's really unsettling, isn't it? Weird. Mm. But I think we're given to understand it's just that's just how it landed. That's a coincidence kind of thing. Because there is this thing, isn't there? This idea that if you lose your shoes, you know, you're probably dead. Yeah, what is that? It's in many cultures. Yeah. Guess it's to do with road traffic accidents more than anything, isn't it? But, ah. But yeah, if you're a victim of a trauma, you're going to wind up with no shoes on. I think we're supposed to understand as well that the mysterious cloud creature is upset or angry that it tried to eat a statue of a horse rather than a real horse. Later on, um, they make play <laughs> of the fact that it had these flags, these colourful bunting flags on it. And they think it may have, what's the word, uh, conditioned the creature into not liking those kind of flags because it ate yes. this horse statue that disagreed with it. So It gets stuck in its tummy. Yeah. So that possibly what causes it to go completely apeshit at the Western show? Because what it does is it turns up and it sucks up all of the audience and <laughs> dupe. <laughs> Absolutely. And this everyone. eventually becomes, you know, front page news. In fact, the only thing uh, that escapes is Lucky the Horse, which has stayed in its little horse box. Uh, and OJ, who turns up late, but is nearly sucked up by it as well. He gets knocked out, doesn't he? Those are the only two survivors of that experience. OJ has decided, he seems to have figured out, that he thinks if you don't look at it, it doesn't eat you. And this is, again, coming from his experience of wrangling horses and being an animal trainer. You know, he thinks, he thinks he's got some kind of simpatico with the, the untamed beast, as it were. So this becomes sort of crucial later on, doesn't it? Now, when news of this disaster gets out and when... Uh, Antlers Holst hears the name of the region that they're in, which was... Oh, yeah. It, yeah. Once he hears that. Is it Aqu- Aguadolts or something? So, it's a I'm real place, sure. I think, somewhere in California near Hollywood. Yep. When he hears this on the news and he realises that M calling him wasn't totally full of shit, he texts her, I think, because she gets a text... At around this point, doesn't she? Ding on her phone. Yeah. She looks at it, and it's obviously antlers. And he, he turns up with the heavy stuff. He turns up with a hand cranked. This like, is the IMAX key thing. Quality film. He, he's got film a hand cranked film camera, so it doesn't rely on any electronics, any electricity or batteries. 
But yet, presumably, a hand-cranked IMAX thing would be a hefty beast. Because the IMAX film is enormous, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the film, film cans are pretty huge, aren't they? Well, you see Angel changing a film canister over, don't you? And they've got, like, yeah. a kind of dark room bag that you have to zip the film canister in, put your arms through it, and then do it all by feel, presumably. Yeah. Now, they come up with a really, really a good strategy, which is they know this thing causes electrical electromagnetic interference. So they take tube men, the kind of little floaty men that you see outside. Wacky, waving arm, inflatable arms men. And rather like in battleships we saw a few weeks ago, they place them on a grid. My camera's Uh, off. My camera's off, so you can't see me. I'm doing an impression of a wacky, waving (laughs) arm. Do you know, interesting story about wacky, waving arm, inflatable tube guys is... That there are two guys who independently claim to have invented them. Whoa. I didn't know that. And this story is told on a great podcast, which I can give a podcast recommendation for, called 99% Invisible by Roman Mars. Uh, It's a classic podcast. It's been going for a long time now. And it's all about architecture and design. And he did an episode about... Those wacky, waving arm, inflatable tube guy men. Who look at me, two, two inventors, obviously. I was listening, Richard. Two inventors, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyway, so they've constructed a grid of these so that when the alien being interferes with electrical field overhead, the batteries for each of the various tube men will go down and they'll be able to place, place, get, get a place. Because they'll stop the, dancing. Tri- the guy, they'll tri- just go yes. floppy. Yeah. They'll be able to triangulate where, where, where this thing is. And they've set up a camera point with antlers and his hand-cranked IMAX. And Angel is also there with a, Up on the with a digital camera as well, just in case. And meanwhile, they've got OJ on horseback on Lucky. But don't forget, this stuff has all become mainstream news. And so just as all this is about to kick off, who arrives on uh, a weirdly modern electric motorbike? It's a TMZ reporter, okay, decked out like Robocop. He's got, okay. Yeah, he's got a mirrored motorcycle helmet with a single hole yeah. over one eye. Again, it's the one eye the thing. The one eye, yeah. But, but he's constantly putting his camera up. He's got this camera rig with a, a digital camera and a stills camera as well, uh, all on one kind of thing that he can hold up whilst he's cycling, driving around, as you say, on his electric bike. M tries to stop him, but he heads off into the field of tube men. And M's like, oh, what's going to happen to an electric bike when it hits? electrical interference and just as she says that you know the bike stops dead in its tracks and he flies off to a, to a horrible landing yeah he goes completely arse over tit over the handlebars <laughs> doesn't he and he breaks bones on landing as we see later but oj is decked out in his orange sweat uh, green i can't remember he's got some kind of hoodie on hasn't he yeah with green eyes on the back of it that's right hood. that's right he's got eyes on the back so he thinks that if he puts that up and it looks it thinks it's looking at him he's looking at it that he'll be bait. And of course, Lucky is this horse that he's trained and has also been you know, close to that creature before. So he thinks uh, Lucky will be the horse to use. It's a, nice, uh, it's a nice story about a man and his horse, in a way. Yeah. Basically, they tempt it, don't they? They tempt it in. And it does indeed come down. It chases, uh, it chases him. He goes to try and actually rescue the guy on the motorbike and then he leads it away. And... Antlers is furiously cranking his IMAX. It's not a euphemism. Uh, and he gets footage, presumably, of this mysterious creature that is preying upon them. Then they get some pretty good footage. But in the end, doesn't it come for Hulse as well? Uh, they think that they... What happens there? When they think they've got it all and they've uh, Angel is changing the film canister so that they can get more, he picks up his handheld hand cranks movie camera and he runs uh, up the hill doesn't he to get the perfect shot because I think he yes. he sees the light is changing golden hour perhaps is approaching and he thinks he'll now get the, <laughs> the perfect shot and really his aim is to give himself up isn't it for this this That's last right, perfect yeah. uh, bit of cinema so it, it's a great it's a self-referential thing isn't it about getting the the great cinema shot this creature is going apeshit crazy isn't it it's like running around and trying trying to suck everybody up and Angel nearly gets eaten at one point, so he wraps himself in barbed wire and a tarpaulin. And I think that's how he escapes, because it starts sucking up the barbed wire, and it's 
connected to a fence and Angel gets kind of spat out and runs away, doesn't he? Uh, and I think it runs after M as well. But it, th- this whole action sequence is a bit frenetic, isn't it? I wouldn't, not sure I can fully describe There's it. all kinds going on there, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what what happens at the end is that M somehow makes it on the motorbike because uh, the field, the electric, electric you know, electric field interference has, has temporarily dissipated. She makes it back to uh, Jupiter's claim. Yeah. Well, it, it's and, the it's uh, a great moment, isn't it, where the yeah. creature is coming after M, and OJ rides up on the horse, you know, tempts it by looking at it. And so the idea is that he's kind of sacrificing himself and he's telling M to, to go away as soon as it turns away from her. She... Now, it, and she's at the wishing well, and the wishing well has this real... Uh, there's, a, there's a fascination here with technology enabling events to occur, isn't there, in this whole movie, okay? Uh, where there's an old-fashioned kind of crank camera, Polaroid... It's a novelty camera, camera isn't it? So it's yeah, in the wishing the well. Wishing well. Yeah. It's in the wishing well. You put, you put your money in, and the idea is that you and your family all look over the wishing well and the flash goes off, and the camera at the bottom of the wishing well looking up gets a picture of you all, all your heads poked over the well. But it's pointing straight up in the sky. She's there in the theme park. This creature has been sucking up all her friends and family and stuff. And she she does two things. One, she, she unhitches the lines that hold down the giant inflatable and apparently buoyant... Uh, one-eyed, one-eyed, nice winked, yeah. winking cowboy. That that cowboy kid, of course, was because Jupe's other role as a child actor was as a kid sheriff oh. in a western that was mentioned. But anyway, it floats up into the sky. This winking cowboy, and by now the the alien thing, whatever it is, has t- sort of transformed in its form, hasn't it? It used to be just kind of a quite a compact shape. Like a guitar plectrum, wasn't it? Yeah, it's become like a, a complex sepal and petal flower arrangement of floatiness. Yeah, it's quite beautiful uh, and amazingly rendered bit of. Uh, I wasn't imagery. sure the reason it transformed, but either it got damaged or injured or upset by something that it had eaten, maybe. Uh, uh, maybe, uh, but we see its inner workings, don't we? As a result, yeah. So it now is pursuing this inflatable thing in the sky, presumably because it's got an eye that's looking at it. And it does indeed engulf it. Because she'd released it right over the park and right over the wishing well, she's able to take pictures. She starts putting coins in. Loads of coins have fallen from the creature and are lying all around there. She starts putting coins into the camera, cranking the handle that you have to crank. It's all charmingly, you know, mechanical, isn't it? Of course, taking as many pictures as she can with this old, old-fashioned novelty camera, and eventually the last shot must be one where that creature is eating the inflatable sort of uh, toy thing. So she finally gets her Oprah shot, doesn't she? From this bad miracle. Bad miracle is another idea that they throw into this movie. Yeah, yeah. The bad miracle, yeah, of a father, the father being hit by a coin, yeah, yeah. and. Additionally, because it's eaten this inflatable thing, it sort of it must at some point bite down on it, as it were, and then the whole thing pops, doesn't it? And the alien is yeah. pops along with it. Game over. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting how it transitions really into kind of well, several things really, but it kind of it kind of transitions, doesn't it, towards the end into some some sort of a big space odyssey kind of grand feeling rather than a horror movie yeah and becomes almost like you know uh, a sci- sci-fi action movie so it's it's kind of genre hopping this movie in several sort of ways we should say the very last scene i think mc's oj appear on a horse and there's been some speculation about whether she's sort of dreaming that or whether he's actually there and did survive uh, but it's sort of happy ending there isn't it and there's all kinds of uh, very very traditional Western theme music as he stands on the ridge of the hill looking toward a kind of thing. Interesting. Very interesting. Was it worth your time, Paul? Was it worth your three pounds? Oh definitely, definitely, definitely. I was I was I was I was pretty much held by this and captivated all the way through. Uh the action was a bit much, really, because just in terms of general feel, I mean it starts off really slow. It really takes its time getting going. 
uh, almost to the point where you might feel it's a little bit sluggish. But then the action towards the end is just so frenetic that uh, there's so much happens. If you, you know, we try to describe what happens in this movie. There's so much happens that sometimes it just feels a bit too much towards the end. But no, I really enjoyed it. How do you feel about it, Richard? Was it a good movie or not? I, I thought it was very clever. And yeah, it has that strange cross-genre kind of effect, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Again, it's much yeah. smarter than your average horror film, I think. I don't mean to denigrate the horror genre, by the way. I'm not saying a lot of horror isn't smart. Yeah. But Jordan Peele, to me, is operating on a whole different level. You know, even down to the fact that in the flashback sequences, the gaudy, gaudy homecoming thing, gaudy birthday party, the chimp is set off by a popping balloon, helium balloon. And at the end, because the alien is killed by a popping helium balloon. Is he just putting these things to things in as, as like, dummy... Dummy tube men to make the viewers kind of speculate on what he what he what he actually thinks, or is, do you think he's got layered deep meaning? Well, he obviously has got layered deep meaning, but do you think it's all layered deep meaning, or is it some of it kind of like intentional? No, some intentional, of, some of it is just cheap and for you know just nodding to at, make people speculate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, some of it is just for fun, and some of it is throwaway. And I think it's all it's always to throw people off the scent, presumably. You know as well. So. Uh, the, maybe, the, maybe what does it all mean sense yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. but multi layered is the only word to describe it I think isn't it absolutely yeah what was impressive for me was the combinatorics of it all it was like we had such strong western vibes you know and this whole thing as you know the first black because I mean their great grandfather was the first black man to ride a horse and to record it on camera that's I mean that's a bit made up right you Although the, the story well, of... Plate 626 does actually exist, doesn't it? It's the first kind yes, of like yeah, man yeah. riding a horse. It, it's not clear whether the jockey was white or black. Could he equally have been... Could have been either. He could have been, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so there's all this stuff about exploitation in Hollywood and all this stuff about the suppression of black experience in Hollywood. Yes. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, he's so cleverly tying all this stuff into... First of all, they call this Ellen the viewer. Yeah. yeah. So about expectations, about, you know... And, reporters and the people, the viewers that they represent and all that, that Hollywood industry that wants to churn up black experience and make it palatable. Mm. There's all that kind of metaphor going on. But then, you know, we've got this huge sort of like big space field towards the end. And then this kind of National Enquirer kind of hokey kind of conspiracy theory is going on, which ties in well with, you know, movies slacker movies from the 90s, people, you know, working in electronic stores and talking talking smack about aliens kind of stuff. Uh, and then there's this whole thing about Hollywood, isn't there? There's a whole Hollywood feel, the whole hokum feel of Hollywood sets and the temporary nature of, you know, all these little industries that subsist on Hollywood, like the Western shows and that kind of thing. So he kind of covers it all and goes everywhere. Yeah. And uh, impressively, I thought. So it feels like we should be giving it some kind of score. Yeah. As, as reductive um, as that you, may seem. Do you not want to talk about inter- potential interpretations or the themes and that kind of thing? Are you, are you or motifs? Are you quite happy to I'm, just say there's lots of stuff in there that you that you could speculate upon? Well, you're touching on some of the, the subtler and more perhaps more interesting elements, you know, and the race politics mm. and the Hollywood industry and yeah, this idea of spectacle and viewership. But it, you know, it does have this very obvious theme of you know, the wild animal going crazy after you try to exploit it. And, of course, that's that works on several levels as well. Certainly there's a racial element to that, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, was he intentionally kind of like looking at a a grotesque sort of understatement of the whole King Kong movie with the chimpanzee? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Potentially, you, yeah. You know, the, the very sort of end scene of that flashback is as you say the chimp comes towards dupe hiding under the table and you think it might be about to kill him and rip his well we know he survived so i guess you do you don't you do know that that doesn't happen but it's pretty tense still i mean but it it puts his hand forward and clearly it was a thing they must have done in the show a lot and he, he fist bumps there's a poster which says it's the first fist bump explosion you know where you go oh afterwards and you move your hands yeah. away. Of course, what actually happens, spoiler alert, is as he fist bumps, the SWAT team have arrived and shoot the chimp in the head. <laughs> so it's a real fist bump it's explosion. Just, <laughs> it's, 
Yeah, and he manages to sell all this in his in his sort of western show, uh, in like a little museum piece. Yeah, so he he captures that weird side of Hollywood, doesn't he? That otherworldly kind of almost detached, deranged sense of Hollywood, and he really ta- gets that kind of big ticket waiters, waiters, waitresses, and waiters arriving, you know, jobbing until that moment arrives. All that sort of ambition and dream that Hollywood encapsulates and all the broken dreams too. So so yeah, he really I think he captures Hollywood in a big way in this movie, as well as making a a scary horror movie uh, that turns into sort of a sci fi adventure towards the end. So yeah. So yeah, I was entertained all the way through. You know, in the era of Stranger Things, you could imagine this as a series. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean I don't know whether it would be great. Well we've seen the alien now, haven't we really? It's, it's, you know, it's, it's it's revealed itself to us. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's too. It's. It, I mean, that ship has long sailed, and it worked really well as a movie. But these days, you could. Well, I suppose what I'm saying is, all the characters are interesting enough that you. I, I would have been happy to spend more time with them. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. Yeah, you, you could have spun it out into a series, not a problem at all. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. It's a funny movie. I was, I was, I was really impressed with the, like the, this, you know, this not sick sense of humor, but this kind of uh, <laughs> again, like the grotesqueries of, of of the situations that he really exploits with one-liners. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't quite remember anything, but they come and they're nice. Yeah, so there's a wink to the audience throughout, and it's uh, it's really enjoyable. Yeah, let's talk about acting, Paul. Then. I thought, yeah, I thought well, it was I think great. it was great. I mean, the moody, silent cowboy Daniel is just great, you know, and the sparse, dramatic statements of heroic intent that are just can't they just they just come from a sixties western, you know? It's like uh, it's great, yeah. And he's playing he's playing OJ like like his dad, like the pot, like Keith David's portrayal of the the gruff, you know, older experienced hand isn't he so that's that's cute and his sister's a complete like a complete wild card different end of the spectrum played by Keke Palmer and Michael Wincott as Antlers Holst you know amazing uh yeah all good so I'll give it an eight for acting yeah I thought the acting was really strong I'm gonna give it a nine. Oh. oh okay plot then storyline well I mean it's a huge multi-layered affair isn't it uh and uh it's really well constructed He's obviously thought about all these sort of uh, metaphors that he's put into the visuals and into the, and into the storyline, and really thought about how an audience might accept those and might take those on board uh, and might process those. Uh, and it's all really great. Uh, the only thing is, like I said before, is I found that the action unraveled a little bit too quickly towards the end, and it didn't feel like thrill and suspense. It kind of felt a bit messy. I, th- I thought there should have been more lulls in the third act once once the, once the space alien had revealed itself completely. But apart from that, yeah, I thought the plot held together. There's lots of interesting backstories. It's an eight from me. Say, so, I thought there was a slightly weak moment where I didn't totally buy uh, Emerald's sudden idea that you know, a horse statue might be a good <laughs> bit of bait. But here's what this film avoids. Right. In a lot of UFO-based stories, a lot of the time would be spent with the main character trying to persuade other people that this thing was real, and you know, yeah. and people would go, "Oh, you just imagined it. Oh, it was, you know, it's a weather balloon or whatever." And that's not what this film is about. Mm-hmm. So, but to be honest, it's not what a lot of these films are about. But they all, most of them, feel compelled to go through that. They feel compelled to win the audience over by convincing them as if they were equally sceptical. But look, yeah. here, you know, I know what I'm in for. I'm, no one is trying to persuade me that this is a real UFO, right? It's a Hollywood story. About a Hollywood story. About a Hollywood story, right? So don't waste my time, like, winning, you know, sceptical characters over for the benefit of a sceptical audience. It's a waste of time. Very clever. Very clever. So... For all that doesn't totally convince in the movie, I actually think it's a a, a a benefit. So I'll give it a nine. Whoa, a nine! Yeah, it's just High a very shrewdly plotted piece of Hollywood. It's not easy to get every nine from Richard. <laughs> okay. What about uh, horror, suspense, and thrills? 
what was really nice is that throwaway scene where the kids play the prank, which is played off in classic Hollywood suspense horror style. And you know, it was just a throwaway. It was just a joke. Brilliant. And it shows that Jordan Peele knows exactly how to do it. You know, at the same time, you know, the alien wasn't that scary in money wise. Just don't look at it and stay indoors kind of thing. So I'll give it an eight for horror, yeah. for suspense. It, it it tickled my chill bones. I was pretty scared all the way through. Uh, oh. And uh, yeah, it was a perfunctory performative horror uh, that I think <laughs> approached things from a fresh angle. It so, did, yeah. 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 So Indeed. yeah, I mean, 7.5. All right. Uh, is that enough categories or are we missing more? Well, I, I think you might want to talk about special effects or not. But. Oh, special effects. Well, the organism looked quite astounding. Some parts of it looked completely weirdly convincing. Some parts were so alien that I had no frame of reference. <laughs> the chip it was like a giant shiny doily, wasn't it, in the sky? <laughs> the chimpanzee, did that convince you, chimpanzee? Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. I'll give it a seven for special effects. They obviously worked, but... Uh, you know, it's difficult to judge some of these things. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was so western at times that you expected some coconuts clanging together for the foley uh, as the horses clip-clopped along. Uh, I love the western feel, but in terms of special effects, yeah, I think it worked. Uh, they were just at the right level. Not too much, not too little. Okay, I thought the alien was convincing. In It wasn't entirely visible, and it wasn't entirely viewable, and I thought that was quite well done. Uh, it, when it did appear, it was ta- it was tantalisingly presented mm. for a few for a few for a few minutes before we got to see it in full. Uh, so I thought, yeah, not so much the quantity of VFX, but the way they were used were used very effectively. So a seven on the effects for me. And so overall, it's a very solid overall, eight. I think. Yeah. yeah, it's an eight from me also. Definitely. Yeah, a great movie. Mm. I would have appreciated it to be a little bit scarier, but. It didn't pan out to be, you know, a full horror movie in the end, did it? It's trying to be more than just a horror movie. So, so Paul, I'm painfully aware that we've given no thought whatsoever to what, what next week's movie will be. <laughs> oh, let's watch that uh, Cave Escape by Thai Boys or whatever it is. 13 Lives. Yes. But is you've it been, movies or is You've it? been vociferously against that for several episodes now. Well, you know, I want to talk about Elon Musk, so let's do it. <laughs> okay, okay. 13 Lives, then, the Netflix documentary film Netflix. about the rescue of a Thai football team stuck in a flooded cave. Not for claustrophobics. No, uh, trigger warnings, no doubt. Until the next time, thank you for listening. We'll see you on the next one. Goodbye. Ciao for now. Bye. Thank you.